Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, it's me, Luli, talking to you from Kosovo. I really appreciate your podcast. It means a lot. I do yoga with it. I hike and all this stuff. Um, yeah, man, it's fucking great having you around. In my fucking ears. And um, I learned a lot, even from your book. It changed my life. I don't hurt women anymore. I tell them straight up. What is my deal? Not the monogamous type. So it's great. I've been happy. I've been happy. Cheers. Chris Ryan. I'm Oscar from Kenya, living in Japan for the past four years. I just moved out of Osaka and I'm currently living in Kyushu as of yesterday. That is Saturday, sorry, Monday, the 24th of September. And damn. I've been living in Osaka for too long that I forgot how the night sky looks like. I'm out here at 12.25 a.m. I just missed my last train. I have to walk home because apparently the last trains in Kyushu stop at goddamn 11 p.m. <laughs> so I had to walk home for two hours and I realized I can see the stars at night. And damn, it feels good. It feels really good to see this. So thank you so much for your podcast. As I'm walking home, I'm listening to you and most, uh, what's his name, Money Mustache, talking about the future and my future. And thank you so much for everything. Have a good day, everyone. Hey, Chris, it's Dave. And um, I'm calling from nowhere exotic, doing nothing special. I'm in Austin. I just got out of a, an attic because I'm in the AC business. And it's hot, man. And I'm plotting my escape as we speak to the highlands of Mexico. So, fingers crossed. Hey, man, I really love that you played Three Dog Night. That was an oldie, but a goodie for me. I'm older than you are, even. So, there you go, man. Keep up the good work, man. You make this being the average Joe working stiff out here bearable. Take her easy, man. Oh, thank you so much for those. They've been in. Uh, they've been sitting in a folder for a while. So, um, Dave, I hope you made it to the highlands of Mexico. And uh, Oscar, I hope you made it back from Osaka or wherever it was you missed that train from. And uh, I hope you're still doing yoga in Kosovo, man. And I'm glad. I hope you're still not hurting women. That's that's good. That's a good thing to be not doing. Hurting women, hurting yourself. You can't hurt somebody without hurting yourself. Similarly, I think when you help somebody, you help yourself. So, what is it Augustine said? Love and do as you please. Sometimes I get all these emails from people asking for advice, and I just want to say, I just want to like send them an auto reply. Love and do as you please. If you're motivated by love, truly motivated by love. You won't fuck up. I'm not saying you won't hurt someone. I'm not saying you won't hurt yourself. I'm not saying 
that you won't ever find yourself in a situation in which suffering is the inevitable result. That's life. And sometimes that's unavoidable. But if you're truly motivated by love, you won't regret it. Um, anyway, I don't know why the fuck I'm talking about that. I am coming to you from a place called Dar es Salaam, the capital city of Tanzania, where uh, we arrived, what, two days ago, I think, after a long and grueling journey from Amsterdam. We have been all over the place. And uh, yeah, I think the the plan, the idea of this was to travel till we got really tired of traveling. So the idea of settling down and building a house in Colorado would be much more attractive. I think we're succeeding in that. I don't know if the world is going to conspire against us building a house or not, but it's hard to, to make these sorts of plans with, you know, the prices of uh, raw materials jumping around all over the place and contractors booked out two, three years in advance. And, uh, yeah, everything is, is so crazy and unstable right now. Uh, I'm very tempted to just, you know, buy gold bars and live in a bunker or something until this shit calms down. But who knows? It may not calm down. Uh, if you have any friends who were like deeply into crypto, especially into Terra, uh, you might want to reach out and give them a hug, send them some love. I have a friend who's a wonderful person, really kind, generous, sweet dude. And, um, he gave us some advice a few years, a couple, what, three years ago, two years ago. I don't know what it was, but he, he's into the crypto thing and he's very, very smart. And he recommended, uh, I think it was Cardano. He's like, I think Cardano's going up. And, and he explained, and he, when he talks about it, it's like, he's talking about, you know, nuclear physics or, you know, he could be talking about mumesons and quarks. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. It's a whole different language. You're staking this and this is some protocol and that's happening here. And I, I don't know, but I like the guy. I trust him. And I said, oh, yeah, a couple of thousand bucks. Let's see what happens. So a couple thousand bucks, put it in, it turns into 10,000. And, uh, and then he, he says, uh, you know, I think probably it's a good time to to pull the money out of that and put it into this other thing, this Terra. I think it's going to be really big. And I was like, okay, great. Well, whatever. Let's try that. You know, what do we got to lose? It's a couple thousand bucks initial investment. Anyway, Terra went nuts in a year. It went from that $10,000 went up to $200,000. It went crazy. And we sold some just to be on the safe side, get some money out, because I don't know what this shit is. And anyway, uh, a couple of weeks after we sold it, it collapsed to basically nothing. And I know a lot of people are feeling uh, schadenfreude about that. That wonderful German word, which means taking pleasure at the misfortune of others. But a lot of people, at least the people I know, weren't really 
speculating in this as a way to try to get rich, uh, particularly the guy I'm talking about. He was very much about spreading love and good information and uh, using this money to help people. And so I feel especially badly for him because that was his thing, right? He wasn't charging us for this information and he wasn't asking for commissions or kickbacks or, hey, you guys made a bunch of money, so give me some. None of that. Uh, It was all just like, hey, this seems to be really cool. Let me spread this among my friends. And, um, And so when it collapsed, not only... I'm sure did he feel embarrassed and probably a little humiliated, but he also probably feels like he inadvertently caused some damage to people. Some people lost money, people that trusted him and and loved him. But the thing is, when someone gives you investment advice or any advice, really, it's on you. It's not on them especially if they're not charging you for that advice. If they're just saying, this is how it looks to me, then it's on you what you do with that information. I've had a lot of people over the years try to get me to spend whatever little money I'd saved up on this or that because it was going to be a sure thing or whatever. And I've watched. I've watched some of them turn out, some of them not turn out. Most of them don't turn out. But I think it gets back to what I said, what Augustine said, love and do as you please, right? If the person who's giving you the advice is speaking out of love and kindness and wishing the best for you, then they cannot be blamed if things don't turn out the way they hoped they would or thought they would. The only thing I think we can really, I don't even want to use the word blame, but the only thing I ever have a hard time forgiving people for is bad intentions. And even that, even that, if someone's got bad intentions, they're working, they're coming out of a place of suffering and pain. So that it's hard to even blame them for that, right? It's like blaming a, a dog that's in excruciating pain for snapping at you when you get close to it, right? Even though you're trying to help it, you need to be wary of anyone who's in pain because they'll be aggressive. That's just the way it manifests. Anyway, I don't know. I didn't, it's weird. I turn on the mic and I just start talking and one thing leads to another and I didn't intend to talk about this at all. I don't have any notes. (laughs) something about those intro snippets i don't know anyway this episode is with my great friend deborah berger who is tal ruspoli's mother so if you're a regular podcast listener you know who tal is and you probably know who deborah is because you may have heard the first episode with her uh three four years ago i don't know it's been a while um i will link to it on the substack page so if you want to uh, follow up any of the stuff that uh, that we talk about in the podcast, I'll put links there on the Substack page. Deborah Berger is fantastic. She is, when I think of Deborah, I think of magnetism. She has this magnetic quality. Um, and 
people are drawn to her and a particular kind of person seems to be drawn to her uh, or maybe she's drawn to them. I don't know. But somehow, however it happens, Deborah is like this heavenly body at the center of a solar system of orbiting beauty and wonder and kindness and intelligence and talent and just and it's something it may be genetic uh, because her son Tao is the same if you are lucky enough to know this guy and hang out with him you will find yourself very quickly in the heart of a community of amazing creative open-hearted people and Deborah, Deborah's world is the same. And often those two worlds merge. They have many common friends. So I met Robert uh, last episode, Robert DeVico, through Deborah. Uh, I think the story was that Robert went to visit Deborah and so fell in love with this place that she was living in, Vejer de la Frontera, that uh, he went back and sold his house and, and came out. I know that's simplifying things a lot, but... That's basically the story or the outlines of the story. So now Robert is there, Deborah's there, and there are all sorts of other brilliant, amazing people just coming in and out of her life. Uh, she introduced us to the folks down in Santa Fe who um, built the, uh, what was it called, the Biosphere 2 project. Google that to have your mind blown. Um, and we hung out with them. I didn't record any podcast cause this was early COVID days and everybody was being very careful. Um, so, uh, I hope to go back there and record some podcasts with those folks. They're magical, magical, uh, people. Anyway, Deborah Berger, she's fantastic. She's one of my favorite people in the world. I truly love her. Uh, if you just listened to the podcast, but you haven't come over to Substack, and checked out what's going on there. I really encourage you to do it. Uh, I, I've been doing some writing. I've been doing a lot more writing recently. I just posted, let's see, I'm looking at the page now. By the way, it's chrisryan.substack.com. And you'll see the podcast there and each episode, the sort of show notes are on there, but also the writing I've been doing. So Let's see. Today, 21 minutes ago, it says, I posted uh, a little thing about Carsey Blanton and trying to find joy amid the sadness of the modern world. And when I say modern world, I'm talking about like last week. Um, she's on tour. Carsey's on tour. So uh, I wanted to give her a little signal boost and... Um, yeah, just sort of uh, talk about some of the things that come up when I'm thinking about Carsey. She's fantastic, and she sent out an email today about trying to find and create joy, even though we're surrounded by tragedy and and um, despair in some ways. I also wrote uh, yesterday, I published a thing called The Banality of Genius, and this was uh, this is my thoughts about the Beatles, this new Beatles documentary that came out a couple months ago. I watched that. I've been thinking about it. And um, I was struck by how normal they seem. And the sort of, as I say, the banality of their creative process. I was really struck by that. It's very interesting. 
Uh, I also wrote a thing called Debunking the Debunkers, Dispatches from an Age of Disaster. So that's another thing that you missed if you don't go to Substack. So you can go to Substack. All three of those are totally free for everyone. I'm supposed to be putting stuff behind this paywall to encourage people to to subscribe. So I'm going to do that. Uh, In fact, I think as soon as I finish recording this intro, I am going to go ahead and record... uh, a broma, which is a bonus Roma. Um, it's going to be a what makes this book great episode about some of the poetry of Walt Whitman. So that's going to be behind the paywall. So you have to subscribe. Uh, you can subscribe for free and you'll see all this other stuff. You'll get an email every time I post something. Or you can subscribe at the low, low rate of, what is it, 417 a month if you pay 50 bucks for the first year. $4.17 a month. Uh, and you get all this stuff, including the stuff that's for paying subscribers only, like the Walt Whitman Brahma that's coming up. All right. And I'm also going to be sending out uh, a newsletter soon that'll have some photos from uh, recent travels. We've been in Spain, Amsterdam, and now Tanzania. It looks like we're going to do a safari. That's going to be very cool. So I'll be talking about that. But tomorrow we are flying out to Zanzibar, which is just off the coast here. Going to spend a week on the island of Zanzibar. Going to do yoga every day. Drink fresh fruit juices. And um, I don't know, maybe I'll detox. What will be left of me if I detox? (laughs) I'll lose weight. I wonder how much of my body weight is just toxins at this point all right anyway thank you for listening to this deborah Berger is awesome i'm so happy to share her with you uh and you with her uh, we talk about her airbnb so if you're going to be in spain and you want to meet deborah uh or at least uh she might be out of town who knows but she's got these airbnbs in vejer de la frontera which is a really cool little town right off the coast down uh, south of Cadiz between Cadiz and Tarifa yeah so go check her out all right I'm gonna actually play uh, a song by Carsey Blanton that I've I really dig it I don't know if I've played it before on the podcast um, but it's called the party at the end of the world and it kind of sums up that search for joy in the midst of confusion and chaos and grief party at the end of the world by the great Carsey Blanton. Uh, go check her out. She's on tour. Uh, she's going to be, I think the first dates are in the Northeast, like Syracuse, upstate New York, all around. I think she's playing Boston, Vermont. Like she, she plays lots of towns. Um, then she's going to be in the Midwest for a while She's going to be in Ireland and the UK uh, in July, I think. And then she's going to be on the West Coast and the Rocky Mountains in November. I'm going to try to catch her there somewhere, maybe in Santa Cruz or something. But go to CarseyBlanton.com and uh, check out her schedule. Seriously, seeing Carsey play live is such a privilege because at this point in her career she's playing she's got a band and she's playing pretty small venues it's very intimate and she is just so brilliant and so courageous and so fucking real it's awesome 
Uh, trust me on that. Really worth checking her out. This is Carsey Blanton, Party at the End of the World.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are in the kitchen of Deborah. Hello, Chris. <laughs> Hello, Deborah. Uh, the return of Deborah. Yeah, so uh, crowd favorite for sure. First time we got together. I think it was in my place in Topanga, wasn't it? In the garden in yes. the back? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like we've hung out so many different places. We are now in Vejer de la Frontera. Where let's get a quick plug in for Deborah's Airbnb. <laughs> it's not why we're doing this. I promise. There's no sponsorship deal here. Well, more than Airbnb, I'd say it's integrating art and architecture, right? And a process that I love to do, and it's sort of part of the circle. So Airbnb is just one venue, right? And what? How if people want to come visit Vejer and and meet you? I have a website, Casas Vejer Debra. Deborah, D E B R A. There's no Deborah. It's right. Deborah. Straight it's casas, up. Casas, plural. Casas, because there are casas. <laughs> yes. In fact, we're staying in one of the casas now that last time I was here was a pile of rubble, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Is now this incredibly beautiful space that's got the sky coming down into the center of it and. Man, so creating spaces, is that something you've, I know you've always been a very creative person, but have you always been like three-dimensional about it? That's a very good uh, way to put it. Yes, because I'm I'm intrigued by people that can actually create a whole room with a painting. That a painting, Mm. a beautiful painting, not only can change your life, it certainly changes the whole atmosphere in a room. And yet I always want to bring that third dimension and that functional art into it. Mm. So I'm exploring that more now, is to just do something for that expression and experience. It's It occurs to me, that just listening to you describe that, I got this image of a dancer and how a dancer moves, creates art by moving through empty space. And in a way, designing interiors the way you do is like the inverse image of a dance. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It, the space is shaped rather than the dancer. Yes, yes. I often think of it like uh, solid music. Right, you know, yeah. Things to yeah. form and how you're playing with other people and their different notes and different harmonies and different moments in, in the piece. Yeah, I, some somewhere in my memory is uh, someone describing a cathedral as like Bach made solid or something like that. Yes, I, I don't remember the notes. Sure, Mont, maybe it was a uh, what's the place in France Mont 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 Saint Vincent. It's an island. Yes, uh, Michel. Mont Saint Michel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. I think that's what it was. Uh, that's an amazing. Have you been there? I haven't. No. It's built on this island just off the coast. When the tides in, it's an island. When the tides out, it's not. Yes, it's I've just seen like a rock. It's it's beautiful. Anyway, so we're in Vejer, and uh, can we get can we talk about your relationship with Spain? I know it goes way back. Sure. You. When did it start? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Well, I remember last time we talked a lot about your your early life and, you know, your father being involved in film and you living in Italy and and meeting Dado. And, you know, I think that we focused on a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which is fascinating. Anyone who uh, is listening to this, I highly recommend you go back and check out the first episode. Um, I remember you talking about hanging out with Jack Nicholson or something. and When I met that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, when they were doing Chinatown. Right. And we talked about how Jack's life had that twist in it that was later recreated in Chinatown of not really knowing who your mother was. Do you remember that? My sister. That, yeah. Like Jack thought his sister, thought his biological mother he grew up thinking was his older sister. Yes, I remember when that first, when he first heard of that. That's That's crazy. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so your. You had that connection to Italy as a child, right? You were living in Italy. Your dad was working in film there? Yes, when I was 12. 12. And then you ran away and hitchhiked through Africa at uh, Well, no, first I ran away at 12. And then my mother sent me to live with my uh, aunt, who was very conservative. And then my father, who I hadn't seen in six years, very formative year from 6 to 12, who had moved to Italy, came and asked me if I wanted to live with him. I was like, sure. So he rescued you from your aunt. <laughs> yes. And and then I just was in, you know, it was like 1968 and it was, you know, Rome was happening with Satirica with all right. these incredible movies and, and just everything that was happening in, you know, 1968. So um, then I was given the choice if I wanted to go to school or not. And I said, no. And, and your dad was living on some like, kind of a commune or something? He created a commune later. But at that point we traveled because he was making movies and Spent like a month and a half in Egypt and right. riding horses around the pyramid and the Sphinx. And so I got a real uh, broader perspective of life than what I was living up until then. Why did you run away initially when you were... There was a lot of... Uh, it was a difficult relationship with my mother. I mean, both my parents... Uh, I didn't have an easy childhood because neither of them were very good at being needed. And so at a very early age, I just wanted to be independent. So Did you have siblings? Yeah, I have my sister. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Karen. Yeah. And then I have uh, three three brothers. And where are you? They're much younger. They're all younger? You're the oldest? Yes. The, my brothers are much younger. Uh, actually, are Tao's age. Mm. And, uh, and my sister is two years older than me. By the way, Tao is Deborah's son. for those of you who don't know Um, and that's how you and I met so you're the first child so there was no one older you're the second my sister your sister's older (laughs) my mother my sister my mother (laughs) so anyway at 15 I was you know full of a sense of adventure and I think this also ties in like you know you can look at things that are traumatic and then there's a moment that they turn around and become your, your, your a gift because it gave me the tools to have this uh, feel safe in the world without feeling like I was leaving some cozy, protected Mm -hmm. family nucleus. I was more like, I can do anything. So getting back to what we were talking about last night, uh, where did that come from? Where did that pivot come from? From from feeling like, oh, I'm so exposed, I'm so vulnerable, I'm afraid to... Actually, this is kind of an advantage. It gives me the ability to do X and Y. I have, I'm fascinated by that question. It goes to the you know, basic question, do we have free will? Right. I don't feel I can take credit for things like that. You know, maybe I, I make an effort to look for, uh, say, in the breakup of a relationship that was very difficult like right. with, uh, with Renato that I basically lost everything. <laughs> 
I made a conscious effort to remember the things I loved about him. You mm-hmm. know, the things he would, how he understood art, how he <clears throat> played the guitar, how he was funny he was, how brilliant he was, all the, all the beautiful things. Yeah. And I think it's a big mistake to harp on the, oh, that was a mistake. Right. This person had these flaws. I right. should have never done, you know. But see, you're saying you made that decision. You made a conscious effort to focus yeah, on the see, positive. Yeah, but where did that come from? I don't know. But it did feel like I could go both ways. Right. And I think it's also important how you talk about things to people that are influential when you're in a vulnerable state. Like mm. if, if I'm, as a friend, trying to help someone through something, I will try and connect with that loving space. And not <clears throat> sometimes you need anger to end something, but it hardens your heart. Yeah. And that I can be I can consciously make that decision that I don't want to live with a hardened heart. I want to remember the love and I want to remember the the the, the gifts that I was got from these things. The same as my childhood, right? I could say, okay, well these are the things. But where that comes from, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's like the more one goes around and around thinking about do we have free will, is there a, a, a choice in, in these things, is the, you know, I don't know. Well, it's almost as if, if you see, if you perceive that there is a choice, then there is. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, if you see, if you see that you're in a position where you can say, all right, I can choose to have a hard heart here i can choose to close myself off to this pain or i can withstand the pain in order to be a better version of myself which is what i really want to be if you see that there's an option then you've got the power to take the to make the right choice if you don't if you people who don't see the option to choose Uh, they have no choice right I was just thinking of two sisters that have been feuding for many years and saying, you know, one of them remembering exactly the moment where they decide to hold on to the, mm-hmm. the dark side right. instead of like at that point you could have just said, what are we doing? Let's let that go and right. work on this together. It becomes part of your identity. But, you know, you know, isn't that the beauty of the mystery, though, that we don't know? Yeah. I, I love what Anya I heard you and, and Anya talking about this in one of your podcasts. And it's just, she was so articulate about this being, how it's much more interesting to be engaged in not knowing, in the journey, in the mystery and yeah. the intrigue. You know, if we just knew what we were here for, and <laughs> which choices we should make at right. which crossroads, right. and, and how to get to that better choice. Autopilot. <laughs> just sit in the back seat and... Let the Tesla drive. You doing the book Beginner's Mind? No. It's a Suzuki, I think, uh, one of the great Zen teachers. And it's a very short book. It's beautiful. Basically, he's saying what you articulated and what Anya talks about, which is no matter how long you study something or how expert you become in something, it's vital that you maintain a beginner's mind. Always be open, always be learning, always be thrilled and surprised and don't let knowledge or age or experience close your mind down to where you're no longer a beginner. That's a great point. The whole idea of being an amateur, right? Right. That you keep doing it with love. And it's an element I uh, keep in my work 
is you try and it's so important to be skilled in what you're doing because otherwise you can have these ideas and you have no way to manifest it uh but not be confined by it right like as a beginner or as an amateur you you keep that unknown you know anything can happen like when i go into a ruin uh there's certain things that I know to bring the light in. I want to hear the church bells. I want to hear the birds and the wind. I want to get as much of the sunlight from the sunrise and the sunset and different moments, the stars at night, let the moonlight come in on the bed. All these things I, I'm looking for. But at the same time, and then how, you know, just a feeling of the space and what you want to have happen in that space more than anything. And it, it's not... I keep thinking, you know, what, how, what would I like to have happen? I want to have interesting conversations. I want people to fall in love. I want people to uh, talk about philosophy and make dinners and have friends and, 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 and moments of solitude. So those ideas are there. But at the same time, I want to be as open to the unknown as possible. Like something happens, the, the, the roof falls down. You say, oh my God, this has to be two floors. This mm. is a course. Well, I would have never seen that. <laughs> Yeah, the roof <laughs> fell down. Great, great news. <laughs> we have a terrace. Is it Rumi, I think, who, who had a little, I don't know if it's a cone or a poem or something, but it said, um, my house burned down. Now I have a better view of the setting sun. Yeah. 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 Be able to let go of your ideas and your plans and, and work with what is. Yeah. Which all circles back to this choice of how we frame our experience because I have the exact same thing you do where people say to me you know oh you've been traveling so much don't you miss home and I say I don't have a home I, I don't have a home to miss <laughs> yes. and I never did as a kid I moved a lot you know and so there's never like oh I miss this place or I miss that particular group of people because my friends are spread out all over the world my experience is all over the world I don't have a, a place that I'm away from well, what I find, people don't ask me that so much anymore, but when they would say, don't you miss Los Angeles or don't you miss someone or something or some time in your life, it's like, I just don't think that way. Yeah. Uh, it's more like if I have that feeling, uh, that means I should start moving towards that person. Then you start looking mm. for the connections. Right. Right? If I want to see Bartolomeo, if I want to see Talon, I start saying, oh yeah, okay, I can do that, this and that. But it's not like wallowing. Oh, I miss, I'm nostalgic for, or I wish that, you know, it, it, again, it comes back to just being in the present. Yeah. I have that same frame of mind turned toward the future. My friend Stanley Krippner, one time I was hanging out with him and I, I think we were, Stanley and I talk about sex a lot. And I said something like, if you could sleep with, you know, any, anyone from the past or, you know, who would it be or whatever. And he said, Oh, I don't think that way. I only fantasize about things that are actually possible. Wow. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing. Like, huh. I don't waste time imagining things I would like that are outside the realm of the possible. <laughs> and you're sort of saying that about the past, right? Like, I don't spend time missing something. If I'm missing bring it, it I can bring now. it in. Yeah, yes. like, it's all... It just took me to run with Robert last night when you were talking about... When he was in, what was he talking about? Something esoteric. He said, <laughs> That's for sure. 
I try not to go there and get <clears throat> go down like a rabbit hole or into this vast. Oh right, yeah, I remember. And the, he said of something that you can't know. Right, right, of the <laughs> unknowable. You'll never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he was saying something about like you know ancient Egyptian hermetic philosophy. Like you should read this, and I was like, oh my god, they're like. <laughs> A hundred things I should read before I get into some, you know, go through a door like that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess what I was getting at when I asked you why you ran away, obviously, you know, I'm sure the relationship with your mother was part of it. But again, it was something at such a young age when you were saying, I'm not putting up with this. I'm going to do... I'm stepping into the unknown rather than tolerating something that makes well, me uncomfortable. There's, there's that. There's my innate sense of adventure uh, and independence. Uh, and then also not feeling, you know, having had this feeling growing up, like I, neither of my parents, as I said, were very good at being needed. So I really wanted to be independent. That was what I wanted to do when I grew up. I just wanted to do that as soon as possible. And then also it was a time in 1968, people were, there was this whole hippie movement. Yeah. Of, you know, people were going to India, people were going to Afghanistan, people were hitchhiking and Woodstock. And, you know, obviously I was very young for all of that, but, <clears throat> but there was this, this other, you know, I wanted to see the world. I could have gone to Madagascar. I could have gone. Then I had a, a companion at the point. He was, uh, he knew navigation so we could hitchhike on boats. Mm. And, uh, and I just, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to live my life and uh, the curiosity and, and all that. So it goes back to saying, okay, it wasn't so much that I was rebelling against something that helped Yeah. because maybe if I had had parents that were saying, <clears throat> You know, <clears throat> here's your college education and study what you want. Or very few people actually have that. Most kids that go to college, and their parents want them to study a certain thing. There's a lot of confinement. So yeah. we all also being aware that everyone has their struggle with their family, with their uh, social setting of what they, what's expected. I just at that age, I just had this sense of like I was not really getting what I needed in school. Yeah. So the idea to look ahead and say, well, okay, if I finish high school and then I go to four years of college and then maybe another four years to really, you know, I was like, I'm not even happy in it now. Let me mm. just like do what I really want. And Yeah. And you make a good point that the time, like late 60s, early 70s, I was, I'm a little younger than you. I was eight in 19, or no, I was six in 1968. I was born in 62. But even at my age, I remember this feeling of like, wow, people are having fun. Like mm-hmm. there's a party going on. Yes. And there's there was sort of a welcoming, I don't know how, how to describe it, but but I imagine people growing up now can't even understand what we're talking about because there was this sense. First of all, there was the baby boom. So there were more people, you know, between... 16 and 24 in the a larger percentage of the population than any other age group. And so there is this swelling of youth and music and energy and color and 
and as a 15 year old you must have just been well, I like, wasn't quite 15 we're jumping ahead I was about no. 10 and oh, so let's so say it's about, like more like but I was affected by that and there was that movement of that and in Italy and in the movies that were being made and my father had a certain success at that time so there was uh, there was that whole thing getting to know him uh, but speaking of all these travels you remember when to have like a dress from Afghanistan <clears throat> somebody had to have gone there and brought it to right. you in their backpack right. Right, or carried it. And Afghanistan was a cool place it to go. It was a very then. cool place yeah. and these beautiful dresses. But anything that you had that was from Thailand or mm. that was from India, somebody brought it to you or somebody had been there. There right. was no internet. You didn't right. have this. So, well, let's see what's being made or let's see, uh, you know, have it shipped in the millions. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. everything had everything... Yeah, there wasn't that mass production. Of and there was that globalization. The pull toward freedom. So you're listening to the Beatles, you're listening to Hendrix, you're listening to music that's like totally different from anything that's existed previously. It's it was such an interesting time to be alive. And everyone had their very own experiences. Yeah. So when I hitchhiked across North Africa and it was Ramadan and. Uh, they had never seen anything like me, and I had never seen anything like them. I mean, so how old was were this, you? I was 15. And you're a little blonde chick cruising around. <laughs> yes. And were you with your companion? I was or? with my companion, who was like 26. And he had his navigation papers. He had been in the Merchant Navy, and he uh, a, a captain on these big ships. So we could pretty much go to a port and choose the boat uh, that we wanted and ask if they wanted, you know, if we could travel with them. That's amazing. Where uh, where did you go? Well, Gibraltar was a good place to to find a ride. It's Fifty miles from here. <laughs> yeah, and I went to uh, Casablanca, uh -huh. Morocco, and the Canary Islands. Which then we decided to get off, and then uh, then you know, and if you're willing to do things like you say, without a complete planned trajectory of what you're expecting to get out of each experience. Yeah. You can say, okay, I know I'll find something that will be useful to someone mm -hmm. that will at least get me enough to, uh, to be able to have a place to eat and sleep and, and then see what happens. Right. One of my favorite books that I read at a very difficult time was, was this one day I went out walking, Laura Lee, Lee, Laura Lee, uh, it's about this man in Andalusia. He he leaves London, I think, with his a little tent and yeah. uh, and his violin. I think and I he read walks. That. Yeah, I think they made a movie too, or a TV series. Huh. You know, a, a a movie. And he walks through England to Spain and ends up in Andalusia. And this was a time when it was it was and when he's in a when he's in a city, he plays the fiddle and people, you know, but. Andalusia was so poor at that time. It was during the time of Franco, but he would talk about like just working all day for a meal and mm. uh, be able to put his tent in somebody's field. But that sense of freedom, you know, to yeah. just drive. And I and I refound that when I came here uh, you know, twenty years ago now. Uh, this sense of adventure, and you know, I just had this little car and. I would just take these secondary roads and see sheep and meadows and beautiful, uh, not cityscapes because there are pueblos, and just feel like, okay, that, and then stop and ask somebody literally on the street that had light in their eyes and like, 
where's a beautiful place that I should go? And they, you know, if they were like tuned on, tuned in, or they'd say, I know exactly what you're looking for. Mm. Okay, there's this, there's this turquoise lake up there, and these things. Or there's, you know, and somebody said, go to the hair. Really? And she had this twinkle in her eye, mm. and I thought, okay. And I took the coastal road, and just this massive coast that was just so beautiful with cows, pastry, and, and these forests, and I just love the Moorish, Moorish architecture. Yeah. It's like the Moors were here for 800 years. And the town, when I found the hair, I just, I could tell from a distance already going through this forest and, you know, that this church was beautiful. Because if there's a beautiful church, there's probably beautiful old houses and architecture. And all these houses that were like in, in ruin at that point with wells and courtyards and art, stone archways and meandering streets like an old Medina, but still we're in Europe, you know, mm. it's, uh, and I just fell in love with it immediately. And, and again, that sense of adventure from when I was here as a, you know, at 15, it was still in me and this joy of embracing the unknown. And without this plan of like, well, I have to have so much money and I have to know what I'm going to do and what work and this and that. I had no idea. I thought maybe I would find a, a room with a view and make some pottery or something and possibly pay, <laughs> pay my rent with, a, you know, some, some pottery. I had no idea that I would be building houses and designing mm. hotels. And, uh, <clears throat> and <clears throat> what I'm very interested in now is also finding a way to create more sense of community between the places. Mm. Creating community is probably like the next step up in in complexity and and sophistication from creating physical space, because a community is an architectural thing. You know, yes. you have to be very conscious of who's involved and how they come in and their relation with others. It's organic, but it's also I, one of the things I've learned is it has to be quite intentional as well. Wow. Well, if we're going to talk about this, we can you know, go to Bombay Beach Biennale. Right. Because that's all happening there. And that's where we actually, no, did we meet? I don't remember. Probably. Right. I don't know where we met. But I think one of, yeah. okay, Tao, who's created yeah. one of the co-founders of right. the Bombay Beach That's Biennale. what he does. Yeah, he and creates. I've been there every year and very supportive. And yeah looking for what I can contribute to this movement, this incredible art movement. But I said to him at one point, Talis, I'm so glad you're not uh, directing all this mm -hmm. or, or planning it. And he saw that sort of as a double-edged <laughs> sort of like, you know, is that a compliment? And absolutely is to let something grow organically because there's just no way that could be happening if it was just his vision. So I think the intention has to be there when you say it has to be intent intentionality. Intentional, yeah. Um, but you can't force it. Right. You have to let everyone, uh, the people involved, yeah, let it form. I think there's, you know, like everything else we're talking about, there's this balance, right, between control and and uh, spontaneity or whatever. What I find with Tao, I think. You know, if I had to try to come up with an explanation for the success of Bombay Beach and, and what Tao does is that his aesthetic, and I don't just mean that visually, but I mean his sense of quality of life and what matters and what doesn't and all that is so strong that it naturally attracts certain kind of people and repels other kinds of people. Mm. 
And so even though he's not intentionally saying you're in, you're out and doing any of that, the force field around him, the gravitational pull is so specific and it's selective in a way that he just naturally attracts the right people who get along with each other. It's kind of like what we were saying last night about how this podcast brings all these beautiful people into my life because they know me and they're like, okay, I like the way that guy thinks. So I want to have a beer with him. And then we become friends and it's just a natural thing. Tao's like that in his own way where he's a magnet. He just, he's a magnet for the right, for the right metal. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't pull everything in. It just pulls some people. Well, I feel that way about my uh, houses here that I've built. They don't, they attract wonderful people. Right. You know, it's, it's not the person who's looking for, uh, I don't know, just a place that's, they're going to exploit to have a party and, uh, uh, you know, they're the people that are going to bring their loving energy to the house. That's what I love about having these these people. I mean, one of my most beautiful moments was like this couple who had left. They were standing in the street at like, you know, 730 in the morning. And they just put their luggage down and embraced each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you like, you know, they had a beautiful time. And, uh, and yeah. that's what I want to create is places yeah. like that. And yeah, Tao has... Uh, you know, is it his decision? There we go back to free will, right? right. No, it's being right. being open to that. Like, does a blade of grass have to force its way up in spring? No, it's it's in that. Uh, it's like what do they call it? being on the beam? Right? Mm-hmm. You're you're on. You're following your your uh, north star. That, well, and that's the thing, right? Like, if if part of the power is that Tao and you are so. Um, I guess the word self-actualized is a way of putting it where, you know, if Tao wants to sit down and work on a Chopin piece, Mm -hmm. he gets up from the table in the middle of the conversation, wanders off to the music room and sits down and plays the piano with no apologies and no, it's just what he wants to do. So just wanted to say self-actualized, I would say self-actualizing. Yeah, of course, because beginner's mind, right? You never get there. Exactly. And it's being in that unknown of saying, okay, it's growing into something and I want to be a part of that. Yeah. And I love that in Bombay Beach. Um, And it's so important to create spaces, you know, that build it and they will come. What I love about architecture too is like when there's the intention and I see these architects that I love uh, I don't know Mike Foster and he was talking about you know wanting there to be this light and this space and this flow of the people working in his building and that is so important and some architects just miss that like mm-hmm. Calatrava he builds these bridges that people fly it on and it's like oh they, they don't know how to walk across the bridge <laughs> Right. <laughs> they don't know how to be in my space but right. to really Think about and and Tao with the art. He's you know it's he's thinking okay you can do what you want. You know? So the point here, the overriding point I think is if you are on your path, the universe opens up to you. Yes. What is that that wonderful saying that's attributed to Goethe, but it's actually someone else about when you make a decision, uh, the whole universe. When you make a commitment right, or a decision, yeah. the whole universe. Uh, opens its arms or something to, yeah. to help you through that and yeah. to help you manifest that and that's why I think the, the intention is the essence and if you fail as 
another very important part of the journey is you have to be open to what happens you know mm. it may not be the right time in on this planet to be creating that space or maybe it is and then you'll get all this other help but um sometimes people are ahead of their time and and have tragic lives and uh, aren't able to manifest with the best intention um but to be okay with that too some Anya told me a story one time that stuck in my head about how she was, you know, very kind of enthusiastic about a particular project that she wanted to put together, a big project involving community and buying property and all this stuff. And she was talking with someone about it, I forget who it was, but someone older than her. And she was, you know, young and idealistic and full of energy. And this guy said, listen, uh, I don't, I'm not, this is not a negative thing. You're obviously very smart, very energetic. I'm sure you can do anything you set out to do. But my advice to you would be to let go of the specifics and hold on to the spirit. Oh, excellent. Isn't that good advice? Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, it's kind of like what I think it aligns with what you're saying. It's like, you know, you came here thinking I'll get a room with a view and I'll make pottery. That's not what happened. But the spirit of what you wanted to do, you just go toward the spirit. You don't yes. know how you're going to get there yes, or the yes, specifics because yes. that'll lead you off the path. Okay, so how do you get that in tune with your spirit, right? We've got all have so much experiences that, you know, can can either help us or also say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that because that happened last time. And, uh, you know, so I'll stay open. But to be able to keep that openness and... and uh, not be reactionary, but to be acting towards that intention. And then I think it's, there's something about, um, there's certain things we can do to kind of like make that fertile ground in which you can follow and listen and hear your spirit. Like for me, it's a sense of joy. Uh, if, if, it, if I get excited about something, it can be a place that maybe nobody else sees what, how the beauty in it. And, and I, again, I could be wrong, but with experience, you kind of find your way, enough confidence, and people start listening to you more, and that makes it a lot easier because you can get uh, you can get that movement going. Um, <clears throat> but how do you get how do you how do you keep your channel open to yeah. that energy? Well, see, and that's, knowing that that's where you're right, and that's why I asked you about running away that first time. Yeah. Like, I think isn't it? One of those things where when you listen to the voice, it gets louder. And when you ignore the voice, Absolutely. it gets quieter. Absolutely. What you don't need atrophies. Yeah, right? exactly. And the more, you, the more you listen, the clearer that voice gets. Right. And maybe it has to do with faith. <clears throat> maybe it's somewhat experience. Maybe it's intention. But all these kind of intangible things are just like it, maybe it's a flimsy read. And it becomes like the basis of how I guide my my life and who who I invite into it and what I seek and I feel like t tragedy of bad education is that it is designed to deaden our awareness of the voice. You think about what we teach kids, right? First things that that we teach kids is you eat whether you're hungry or not. You go to bed whether you're tired or not. I'm not saying you as a mother. I'm right. saying the culture, right? Well, Ignore the voice that's coming from your body. Well, even more specifically in this podcast, I've seen that life is a festival where mm -hmm. Tao is talking with uh, with um, <clears throat> Ian 
Armstrong about specifically like how Bombay Beach is this shocking place. It's like no matter what you've seen of it or you think, you've just never seen anything like it. I mean, both for the incredible disarray and sadness and poverty and the art and the beauty. It's just this incredible combination of things which you don't get when you get off of the highway and go to a, there's a McDonald's and a Walmart and uh, uh, all these chains, which actually perhaps are even designed to eliminate any possibility of, of uh, creativity mm. because there's just no surprise. There's nothing that's mm. tantalizing to your senses. There's no mystery. There's no intrigue. That's the whole point of them. They're standardized. And yet you the know what world you're is filled with that. I mean, you go into the more, the more aware I am. I mean, even just sitting in a meditation, I can feel like the hairs in my nose, the breath coming. It's like, it's, it's fascinating. You walk in the forest and you see these Spanish imperial eagle flying above and 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 this flower what was the flower it wasn't acapanthus it's that that Jeremy was mm, I forget the, the Latin it looks yeah. like a fox tail and things that are blossoming and and the water the way it's making these shit there's there's so much intrigue but you just don't find that in a strip mall <laughs> <laughs> which is why you should never take mushrooms at a strip mall <laughs> <laughs> the moral of the story. The moral of the story. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's true. Like we were talking about uh, getting older earlier and, and how it can be so relieving in some ways because you're no longer saying, what's going to happen to me? Like, it's happening. You know what's happening. It's More than getting older, I've heard it referred to as eldering. <laughs> eldering. Eldering. And it is a beautiful process. It's way underrated. And just as youth is way overrated. As yeah. I, that's the point I return to on this podcast a lot because I know a lot of people listening are in their 20s and early 30s. And the culture says, these are the best days of your life. And they're like, a lot of them are like, are you kidding? This is the best. I'm so stressed out and, you know, struggling. And oh, I've got debt yeah. from college. And, and and returning to what we were saying earlier, I, I have a lot of compassion for young people now who don't look out at the world and see Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and bell bottoms and tie dye and, you know, flowers in our hair, they don't, that's not out there. Well, I'm not, uh, you know, I have a friend who has a beautiful yoga retreat called Surelila, and she's very much on the pulse of all these positive things that people are doing, both spiritually, physically, diets. It, it's such a loving and beautiful place. And that I think it's important to keep the balance of there are all these incredible things going on too. Yeah. In oh, no doubt. Are doing. But don't you feel that this is a mournful historical moment? I think Kids. we're always in a historical moment. I think we're always on the edge of something, whether it's a new discovery, whether it's the, you know, the Wild West, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the discovery of space. Aren't, aren't but those are opportunities. Always? And I feel like this moment is defined by, you know, global uh, climate change is happening and we're not doing anything to stop it. There's this impending, these are the end days. These are the end times. There, and I know, you know, when we were young, everyone was afraid the Soviet Union was going to shoot nuclear missiles and 
get under your desk and all that. There, there were other potential disasters, but that was like, oh, that could happen, but probably won't. Whereas this is like, this is happening. This is happening. The islands are washing away. The fires are raging in New Mexico right now, months before fire season. You know, the Colorado River Basin is dried up more than it's ever been in a thousand years. Like that shit's happening. And I feel like I got an email recently from a woman who um, is heartbreaking. She said uh, she teaches elementary school and she was trying to think of how or whether to incorporate discussions of climate change and global catastrophe into her lesson plan. And she kind of thought, like, maybe I should just not even introduce it. Just let them have their innocence, you know. And then she asked some questions and she realized, like, these little second, third graders, they already know. And they're terrified and they're sad. And there's, I mean, I don't want to bring anyone down, but I feel like we live in a moment of grief. Whereas 1968, the war was happening. There was a lot of suffering going on. But I feel like it was a time when of possibility. People thought we're going to change the world. Earth Day, we're landing on the moon. Technology is bringing us good things, not fucking distraction and anxiety and you know increasing suicide rates among teenagers, which is what it's doing now. So, I, I mean, all of this is just to say that I feel... I agree well, with you. What does that make you feel? Does that make you feel like it, there's there's no point? Does it make you personally feel hopeless, or does it? No, make you it feel doesn't. Like you, but how it, do you deal with that? Well, I think one of the things is it makes me extremely compassionate for people who are coming to consciousness now. Like I understand their rage, I understand their grief, and. You know, I I certainly agree it's super important to, to be positive. I'm pretty positive about life, but I think a lot of it um, is, is sort of based on, I don't want to just tell, it's kind of like what we were saying earlier about how to deal with someone who's grieving. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to say, well, cheer up, and there's a lot of good things happening too, and this and that. I kind of want to be here for people who say, man, this is fucking hard. This is a hard time to be 20, 25. You know, it's the end of the American empire. It's people are graduating from college, $50,000, $60,000 in debt. That didn't happen in the 60s or the 70s. You know, it's the whole sort of... Well, we're in a time of change, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean... All civilizations come to an end. I mean, maybe not all. Maybe they'll... No, they all do. They all do. Okay. (laughs) They all have. So, wow. I mean, look at times of war in the past. I mean, there's... there's, In the the Spanish... I mean, one could come up with a myriad of of moments that are as dark or darker than... Yeah. Only now we're aware of it on a global and scale. It's global. But yeah. you know, if you were here during the Spanish flu, uh, you know, the plague or something, you wouldn't be need to think yeah. about what's going on on the other side of the world or climate right. change or anything. Right. There's no escape half anyway. People dying in front of you. That's true. Yeah, and it's also interesting that all civilizations have ended. This is something I I wrote about in Civilized to Death. Um but that wasn't necessarily bad news for most of the people who lived in them. That was bad news for the elite, mm. right? The, mm-hmm. the ruling class. 
But for average people, often quality of life went up when the shit hit the fan. Right. So it's not necessarily bad news for people, you know, living in a declining empire. Like that might turn out better for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just don't pay your student loans. Like maybe right. it'll all go away because the bank will collapse. You know, I mean, there's a well. I think in times like this, the most important thing to cultivate is perhaps compassion, yeah. kindness, um, speaking languages, yeah, learning skills, create looking for and creating community uh, venues in which. If we're in a stage of transformation, I want to be there on the side that's helping us to right. evolve. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's hopeless. Maybe it's all doom. But if there is a chance, I want to be on the side. I'm going to be rooting for uh, evolution, for consciousness, yeah. for, uh, you know, for the earth and for us to create, you know, keep that connection, which I think we, we all have. And especially when you're young, maybe that's the time to be questioning. Maybe that's the, I mean... Of course, it's the time of questioning, and but these people that you're talking about, you want to reach out to, more important than ever to plant a tree and right. learn how to <clears throat> grow your tomatoes and, yeah. and and help your neighbor and things that are going to make your life meaningful. Yeah, and and the best way to make your life meaningful is to help other people. And Absolutely. And not just because it's a good thing to do, because it actually works. Well, that's the thing is, you know, you start thinking, oh, well, that's like a saintly thing to do is to look to help other people. But no, like you were saying, you get connected. You're yeah. like, you want to be, you want to have the world open to you? Look at what you can bring to different situations. Right. And then you'll find so many doors open and 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 people that, and and love in your life and, and beauty. You know, this this whole thing of uh, promoting individuality and I'm going to become famous, I'm going to sign my work and, you know, this will make me uh, important. You know, that's so lonely, you know, and look at the people that have achieved that. They're suicidal or tearing their lives apart or there's, yeah. you know, and, and it's really so simple to find something, to find something of beauty in your life each day. And then it goes back to looking for that, wanting that. How do you cultivate that, that desire when everything is telling you, you know, you need to be afraid, you need to think about yourself, you need to, you know, self-grandizement. Um, but, you know, both, both messages are coming through. You have this incredible, and there's so many things about you that are incredible, but one that keeps coming up for me is how rich and generous you are with your friends. Aww. Like, you know, so many people ranging from billionaires to children, homeless kids that you worked with in L.A., you know, like the, from super famous to totally unknown to from, you know, your social circle is is huge. I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> and you're always seeking to connect. Like it's it's actually makes me uncomfortable sometimes because as I said to you earlier, I'm really bad with names. And you every time you tell a story about someone, you're like, 
Oh, Teresa, you know Teresa, this beautiful, <laughs> lovely woman who plays piano and she's around. I think you met her. And I'm like, Ugh. And then you're like, and she's with Pablo. You remember Pablo? He's the architect who's this brilliant, blah, blah, blah. And, and you're so complimentary about everyone. Everyone's beautiful and brilliant and amazing. And I'm sure they are, but that's also the way you see everyone. Um, and you're always like, oh, you're going to be in Barcelona? Well, Elizabeth is going to be in Barcelona. You remember Elizabeth? She's the painter. Like, no, I don't. I'm an idiot. <laughs> But, but it's something that I admire very much about you because I've often felt this myself. Like I have interesting friends and nothing makes me happier than giving a friend right. to another friend. Yes, you know, it's greatest treasures. And it's almost like a life. legacy. It's like I'll die and you guys will still know each other, you know, and that makes me so happy. It, it's like a I don't know. It's it's a beautiful yeah, thing. But you see, that's something so simple and it costs nothing right right it's like um i don't know one one of my birthdays happened one during bombay beach and uh and there was this procession and well tao put out this this whatsapp to the group saying you know my mother's here it's her birthday and she's always been so supportive and if you see her you know give her a hug and that. So I was like in this movie because everywhere I walked the whole day, anytime I'd see somebody, they'd smile at me <laughs> and, and give me a hug. And, and then there was this procession and then everybody, there was this opera singer and then they all sang happy birthday. I mean, it was like the most beautiful uh, moment. And, you know, it it cost nothing. It, it was this thought that mm. then manifested in this right. beautiful sharing and connection with everybody that was in the town you know and and so often it is these things like sharing a friend sharing an idea uh everybody bringing something to a meal it's not like you have to have and it could be in a forest or on a on a beach and and it's these these thoughts that manifest that then are to connect people yeah. like in so much in your podcast is connecting people like and, and sharing really significant and intimate things. It's not like, well, okay, I'm only going to talk about, you know, like I said, let's talk about anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So an hour ago, I said, let's talk about your connection to Spain. And yes. <laughs> we wandered off. You, so you were in Spain as a kid you, in Gibraltar. You're, uh, right, at 15. And it, Spain was very different in those days. Um, you know, because see, this was. Well, I mean, I remember Spain when Franco was here, so that must have been like 1975. Yeah. He died in 76. I remember. But I mean, yeah. people were hitchhiking, walking 600 kilometers backwards because nobody would stop. Oh. You know, if you were with a, a, a man, you know, now one of the things I love most about this town is like everyone was helping each other. You know, mm -hmm. you could. There were very few people had cars, and very few people had jobs, and the money was was very poor at that time. But you know, you could like park. I'd park my car in front of a shop and and run in to grab something, and somebody would be behind me, and I'd run out, and they go, "No, no, finish your shopping." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No rush. No rush. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you how do you deal with that? Because as you know, I lived in Spain a long time. Uh, and I was, I never became Spanish, obviously. Uh, I love the culture, but it's definitely, I, I'm outside it in some, you know, linguistically I speak, but shitty accent. Um, but one of the things that always intrigues me is the Spanish tolerance for ambiguity. 
where as an American, raised as an American, I want to know, can I park here or not? <laughs> do you open at four o'clock or not? When does this open? Well, it opens when I get here. Well, when are you going to get here? I like, I need to schedule. And, and I think it ties into what you're saying that kind of like, no, finish your shopping. I, I'll, okay, I'll get there 15 minutes later. So what? <laughs> And it sort of but ripples even out. Like with the with the with the police or with the ayuntamiento, with the town hall. I remember like um, you know parking in a in a spot that I wasn't wasn't supposed to. And I and I said to the to the policeman, um, oh listen, I didn't I didn't know I went to the movies or something. And he said, okay, look, fill out this form. Say you parked here just for five minutes. I know you went to the movies. Don't. <laughs> Lie to me. <laughs> when I get the report, I'll you know forgive you for it. You know, and it's this human contact yeah. that um, I don't know. I, I think also how you drive, and yes, the more people and the more cars there are, the more you have to be mm. uh, know exactly what you can do and what you can't do. But there was very little of that when I came here because. Again, there's something about it being just like this, some kind of forgotten place in Africa. Now it's like known as the most beautiful part of Spain. And um, <laughs> what was your question about oh, just the oh, tolerance knowing for things. ambiguity? Able, okay, yeah. The tolerance for ambiguity. Um, yeah, you know that was so much so before, and so much for just like on your word. <gasps> Even there yesterday, was... we're talking about arc, uh, deals where you buy a property. And like the deed isn't clear. Well, that's basically how I bought my property. And you're like, well, you just sort of have to risk it, and it'll work out. Yeah, and for me, it's years. like, are you kidding me? I'm putting a hundred thousand dollars down, and I don't know if I own this or not. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Forget about it. Well, <laughs> somehow I knew that it was going to work out. Like the the this 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 beautiful property that I bought inside an ancient wall with views of Africa. And uh, inside this 10th century wall, uh, there were like 12 different parts to it. I mean, there was a, a, a three sisters and the brother had married and the kids were incapacitated. And it was, it was so complicated, much, very much like this piece here. Uh, but somehow I just knew it was gonna be okay. And I just, you know, went for it and even start working on it before I owned it because I wanted to save the ancient wall. Mm. And, uh, and and sure enough, people were coming to me for years after, how did you buy this? How did you buy this? You know, there was this woman who would, uh, you know, pull out at the last minute. I tried five years ago. I tried 20 years ago. But again, it's just, I had this, this intuition that this was my house, you know, and this was going to, going to work out. Mm. And I don't know when you're saying, oh, I'm, not going to do that because unless I have everything, like all the T's crossed and I's dotted, I don't know if it's mine, it can go wrong. Uh, I don't know. That's just, I haven't been guided a lot by fear in my life. As a foreigner, I think, I mean, I'm very sensitive to not being victimized by a culture I don't understand. You know, you mm -hmm. always hear all these stories about people buy property in other countries and then Turns out they don't horror, really so, own But they it. also, these horror stories happen in your own country as well. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people, you know, it, just so many things can go wrong. So, yes, no, words of caution. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing about Spain, in my experience, and it sounds like yours, is that they're good people by and large. I don't feel like there's there's not a lot of... I mean, there's a lot of confusion and kind of low-level chaos and... 
but I don't feel like there's a lot of, um, uh, what's the word, like people looking to rip you off. Oh, she's American. Let's like take her for a ride. You know, mm-hmm. they might price it up a little more for American, but. Well, that's been my experience in, in life. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think the more you see that in people, the more you'll attract that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could be. But you've <laughs> lost some money and, and I mean, you've lost a lot, right? You, it hasn't all been. <laughs> run, but I don't think it was anyone's intention. You know, mm. I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think it was the. I think in the situations that have gone dark, let's say, or been more challenging, it it hasn't been for the malice of someone. Malice—that's you know? the word I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it was a time that I had to let go of everything, and a lot mm. of it I gave up voluntarily, and then some things I had help with <laughs> that were just ripped away from me. But, um, but you know, I look back at that time and I'm grateful for it because I wouldn't have the life I have today. Mm-hmm. What I learned was that I could immerse myself in a different culture, learn the language, learn how to do things that I love to do that I never thought, you know, could actually be a livelihood for me. You know, I thought it was just some things that, that I was attracted to, but it wasn't really that important. It, like really important things in life are things about ecology and education and science. And uh, and no, whatever it is that really excites you and brings that love into something you do, that in itself is such an important manifestation. Mm. Whether you do it to make, to make money and to, to live on or just to do it. Um, that energy, I think, is very, very important to to bring as much of that into the world as we can. That's a that's a really good point that I don't hear made enough. I certainly don't make it enough. Doing, being true to yourself and your and other people, and just manifesting positivity in what you're doing. It doesn't need to directly be about saving coral reefs or sitting in a tree, not that there's anything wrong with that kind of thing, but just bringing more love and light into the world is itself deeply meaningful. Yes. I, and you feel it from people, you know, what they emanate. Are they doing things that they love to do? And, you know, if you're doing something you don't love to do, maybe you can find some love, something in that. Like if you say, okay, I love to wash the dishes. I was like, you know, Maybe it takes up too much time with it, but then you can feel the water. You could say, I'm doing something that's making somebody happy. I'm making this, I don't know. And that's true with everything. Like if you, you know, you may not be happy to change, you have to get a flat tire in the pouring rain in the middle of the night and have no one there to help you. But in the acceptance of doing that, um, you can find joy in that. Mm. Yeah. And I do think that's a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Choose joy if possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely always working on that. It's it's one of those things that's so easy to say and so hard to do when you're pulled over by the side of the road in the rain. (laughs) You know, uh, I had uh, uh, somebody who was great as a spiritual advisor for me, Hanya. She would say, when I'd say, this is so complicated and I don't know what to do. She said, okay, your mantra is, it's easy. So when you say it's it's not easy to look for joy, it's easy. It's mm. the easy, you know, and, and it suddenly shifts. 
You know, if you're telling yeah. yourself something's really complicated, I'm trying to do this and it's stressful and uh, there's all this against me, you know, say it's easy. It's easy. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, the, the way you moved your body when you said that people couldn't see you, but it made me think so much advancement is about letting go. Yes. Not about picking up, not about more, it's about less. Someone said, knowledge is, what was the line? Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you acquire knowledge, but real wisdom is knowing when to just let go and not worry about it. Well, something you embody in your uh, choice and lifestyle is that that I appreciate so much. A rich man is not a man who has a lot, but one who needs little. Mm. So the more you can live in a simple way, the freer you are and the richer you are. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, and the what is it? Never pick up a weapon because you're sacrificing the power of an empty hand. Love that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place to leave it, don't <laughs> you? So and we're not going to yes. get more wise than that. <laughs> we've we've wised ourselves. We've eldered ourselves right into a corner here. This has been so enjoyable thank once you. again. I yeah. love having you here. Thank you so much oh, for thanks for having us. This for, is great. Uh, putting the hair on your. Uh, Oh, it's on the list always. Journey. So people uh, who are listening to this who resonate with what we've been talking about, you've heard it. You've got an opportunity to come and hang out and see this beautiful place. So that beautiful um, saying of Joseph Campbell of follow your bliss. Yeah. I've also heard it as uh, follow your blisters. <laughs> <laughs> The so things that make you want to work. Do not underestimate hard work. You yeah. have to, you know, it's like God can move mountains, but bring a shovel. Right. So. <laughs> That's good. That's a good one. All right. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you, listening, Chris. everybody. Welcome to the party. <laughs> yes. All right. There you have it. Deborah Berger, Fajardo La Frontera. Listen to the first episode with Deborah. Uh, you'll find it in the archives to hear more about her early days uh, being married to Tao's father, the Italian prince, Dato de Ruspoli, her dad, who was uh, working as a, an actor in, in uh, spaghetti westerns, I believe, in Italy. And uh, we talked a, a lot more, I think, about her sort of adventures in her youth in that episode. But we covered some of it here, too. Um, anyway, Deborah, awesome. Fejero de Frontera. Thanks for listening. I'm going to sign off now and go uh, talk about Walt Whitman for a while. Don't forget to go to Substack, chrisryan.substack.com. Uh, you'll find all sorts of stuff going on over there. Thanks for listening. Bye.